Last week, we talked about a dash and a comma. So I don't know how many, how many of you were here last week? Okay, a good number. So the dash and the comma refers to uh, the fact that uh, when, you know, you see the, the, the graveyards and they have the beginning date and the ending date and there's just a dash between. And we read the little, that kind of cliche poem that talks about the dash represents everything that was contained in that life. You know, we tend to focus on the endpoints, but it's really the dash that contains everything. Well, Jesus didn't even get a dash. He only got a comma. And in the first creed that the church put together called the Apostles' Creed in the mid-2nd century or so, um, you know, as I believe in, in Jesus, you know, conceived in the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So somewhere between born of the Virgin Mary and suffered and died, all you get is a comma. So once again, the church has been so focused on the theological endpoints. The church has been focused so much on theologically significant events that define the structure of our faith that all we get is a comma to really signify the entirety of Jesus' life. Everything he said, everything he did, everything he felt, every relationship and smile and embrace, everything that constituted who he is, is just a comma. And the thing that we have to remember is, is that we can't understand the meaning of those theologically significant events except in the context of the life. Because each one of those events is just a moment in a life. And so we've kind of got it back to front. And the church for, you know, a good 17, 1800 years now in the West, has focused on these endpoints and not as much on the life, not as much on what the life signified, the love, the connection of Jesus. And so what we're talking about is how do we refocus? How do we focus as much on the comma as we do on the endpoints? It's not that the endpoints aren't important. Of course they are. They still define the structure of our faith. But we want to balance them with the life because the life informs what we understand about birth, death, and resurrection. All of that occurs together. You can't separate them. And so we forget how deep our religious training goes. I was raised Catholic. Many of you were raised in different denominations and uh, evangelical Those teachings that focus on the intellectual, focus on the theological, focus on those significant events is really deep inside of us. And so even if you're sort of agreeing intellectually with what I'm saying right now, it's going to take some time before the balance really starts to show itself in our lives. And that's what we want. The first followers of Jesus called themselves followers of the way. They were following this way. They were following the comma. They were following the way that Jesus lived. They understood what the resurrection meant to them, of course. But they were living the comma. We want to live the comma as well. We want to live the way Jesus lived, which will inform everything that we know about our faith. And in the beginning of a new year, hey, that's not a bad thing to refocus on. And so what I was thinking, let's let's take a look at that. How do we retool? How do we refocus? How do we start to balance what it is that we understand about what it means to follow Jesus? Just sing that song. I love that song. Um, And so, 
Jesus gives us a framework, but it's something that we miss. He gives us the way about this, that we can start to turn this around. But we miss the significance of it. We miss the meaning of it because we miss the Aramaic context. We miss the the significance of how his language changed. It didn't change. How his expression in his language has been changed by the translation into Western languages. And more importantly, by the translation into Western worldview, Western mindset. So what we're going to do is just take a look at that and and see if we can turn this thing around. I was speaking, I got invited by Gail, Bill's Gail over here, uh, to speak at uh, Al-Anon meeting on Thursday morning. And we got to go, and it it was great. It was that rainy day, you know, so it was just like really dark and stormy. So it it was really fun to be there and and, uh, just enjoying the rain and the weather. But as I was speaking... As, as you know, I always do, looking out at the, at the group there, it's probably 35 or maybe 40 people there. And you see all the faces and you see the body language and you can see that, you know, a lot of people were really seemed enthusiastically engaged. They're looking right back at me. You know, their faces are kind of animated or they're nodding, you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, other ones are kind of flat and you don't exactly know where, where they're coming from. And then as the, as the uh, you know, this, the talk went on, uh, you know, and I only spoke for 30 minutes, Frank. I know what you're thinking here. But as <laughs> as the talk went on, you know, people would start to shift and a couple of them got up to go to the bathroom and that sort of thing. And so, I'm going, okay, I'm losing their attention right now. Afterwards, uh, a lot of people, um, act, actually, after I spoke, they shared. And so a lot of people shared what they heard and their takeaways. And then afterwards, people wanted to come up and talk to me. And that was all great. Um, and so there was there was a lot of enthusiasm. They were they were hearing things. One lady came up. It was funny, and she said, um, "Thank me for being there." But she said, "You know what? I was kind of distracted at the beginning because I felt more like I was at a church service than I was an Al-Anon meeting." So she was giving me the message, right? You know, and I told them right at the beginning, you know. Inviting a pastor to speak at a twelve-step meeting is kind of like inviting a rabbi over for a ham dinner. You know, it's like enjoy the meal, but. Don't touch the main course. And I I told them right up front, you know, I can't divorce my spirituality from my 12-step experience, from my Al-Anon experience, or from the work that we're doing in recovery. But I know I stayed this side of the line, but not quite enough for her. So as you just go through life, generally speaking, but especially if you're doing any public speaking, what you realize is that you are seeing in every group All four of the soils that Jesus talks about in the sower and the seed, the parable of the sower and the seed, which really should be, instead of the parable of the sower, it really should be the parable of the soils because it's the soils or the parable of the four soils. It's the soils that are really at issue here. You know, the sower is the constant, but it's the soils that are are moving around. So if we look at Jesus' parable and parable... You know, how do you define parable? So I think it's always important for us to look at these words that we use. Parable literally means to throw alongside or to throw beside. You know, wherever you see the word para, it means beside. And so a paralegal is someone who works beside the legal, you know. And uh, paranormal, something that's beside normal. So when we see parable, it's something that has been thrown alongside. It's a story. It is a saying. 
that is talking about some kind of moral or ethical or spiritual lesson, but using different terms. So it's sort of an extended simile, extended metaphor. It can be allegorical. It can be all of those things. So Jesus uses these so often. And in this particular saying right here at Matthew 13, we're going to see him give the parable, and then we're going to see him being challenged as to why he speaks in parables, and then we're going to see him give an interpretation of the parable, which is really unusual in the Gospels. But it's really instructive for us if we're trying to find a way to retool ourselves, to live the comma, and to balance our theology and our experience, then I think that Jesus is coming to our rescue here. If we can hear him from that Aramaic context. So let's take a look at Matthew 13, starting right at verse 1. That day, that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to hear him. So he got on a boat and he sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. Can you just picture that for a second? Isn't that, isn't that an amazing image? I mean, everybody up to the water's edge, kind of forming that that front line, people scattered, and here he is out, maybe just a few yards out in the water, bobbing around, sitting there. Jewish teachers always sit to teach. They stand to pray and they sit to teach. So he would have sat down in the boat. Like it says right there, he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, then some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. She who has ears, let her hear. This is one of Jesus' favorite sayings. We've got to hear this. Because what he's talking about here is a different kind of hearing. He's talking about if you can hear this in a different way, if you can hear this from inside out rather than outside in, something is going to change. Now, You've heard this over and over again. I know it's, it's a staple and, and one of the most famous parables that, that is recorded in the New Testament. It's assumed in the church and in church interpretation that you probably have heard that what Jesus is talking about here is that the four soils equal four different types of people that have various ways of reacting to the truth, reacting to the word. And this word of Jesus, you know, what, what does that mean? Melta in Aramaic doesn't mean just a word the way we think of word. It can be a sentence. It can be a whole concept. It can be a narrative flow, a story. As long as it has a, a defined beginning and an end, it's melta. Okay? So it's not just this word as we think of it, but an extended narrative. If you will, it's God's story. Maybe it's the story of God involved in humankind, involved in our lives. And so he's saying, if you can hear this in a different way. And so the church has, has said, there are people that, four different types of people that are going to react to this story, react to this, this word of Jesus. But it even breaks down further because it's sort of three against one. The three that don't ultimately connect with the word, those are the unbelievers. Those are the non-believers. And so it becomes a parable about believers and non-believers, us against them. 
And that's the way that we normally have the parable interpreted or that we've assumed that it was interpreted. And we need to take another look at that and see, is there a deeper way that Jesus is trying to communicate through this extended metaphor? I've often heard criticism, not often, but every once in a while you hear criticism of the sower being really sloppy and inefficient. Have you ever heard that one before? I mean, good Gordon, He's just throwing this stuff all over the place. It's landing on the street. It's landing over here. It's landing on rocks. I mean, wouldn't a good farmer carefully prepare the soil? I mean, even in the picture that I got down there, you know, there's neat rows there and he's throwing the soil, but it's going to land on dirt at least for crying out loud. You know, we can get overly literal here, and so we've got to be careful. But we can get a little bit literal here. Because farming or planting on a Galilean hillside is not like planting in the Midwest. Okay, You don't have that rich, nearly black loam that, that you've got there. What you have are rocky hillsides. What you have is a very thin topsoil over a basalt bedrock with lots of protruding, protruding stones and whatnot. You've got shifting moisture and, and wind conditions that make that soil receptive at certain times and unreceptive at other times, sometimes within a given day. So to try to do all the calculations, to try to clear the rocks, to try to prepare the soil, to do it at just the right time so that you're getting the moisture and the wind and all that, you know, by the time you do all that, it's actually more efficient So you just walk up and down the hillside and cast the seed and accept the loss that's naturally going to occur because what hits the good soil is going to do the job. And so these are images that the people would have been experiencing every day. Jesus talks about this sower, and they all know what he's talking about. They've seen it over and over again. They know what happens when the seed falls near the, 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 the packed, hard, rutted footpath and the birds come and, and eat it up. They, they've seen all this. And so it's something that is very familiar to them. And that is a key to a parable. It has to be something that resonates with the receiver, that they actually see and can and recreate the experience in their minds and in their hearts and make the connection that is supposed to be happening here. So... This, this uh, idea of the sloppy <laughs> gardener isn't real germane, but let's take it a bit deeper. If we are talking about people who understand and have seen this word of Jesus, how are they metaphorically going to be reacting to it? How can we possibly prepare people for a spiritual or even an emotional transformation anyway? I mean, it's hard enough to do it for the soil on a Galilean hillside. How do you do it in people's hearts? How do you do it in their minds? How do you prepare people? This is, this is the, the difficulty that we have. I remember the first time I went to a, an AA meeting, and I was a guest, and so I, w- I was sitting in. And uh, I remember an old-timer called on to share, and uh, he tells a story about it. He was at a meeting at an evening one time, and a young person came in, a first-timer, and he took one look at him, pulled out a $10 bill, gave it to him and said, go buy a drink and come back when you're ready. And of course, my mouth just dropped open. I said, how can you do that? You know, you know, after 18 years of working in recovery, you start to understand. Because you can see when people are at least looking like they're ready. And you can certainly see when they're not. And you understand that there is no force on earth that can make someone ready to receive something different something that is not already a part of their worldview, until they're ready. 
Jesus couldn't do it either. And so this idea of preparing the soil, you know, it's usually easy after you've had some experience to see who's not ready to receive something new. But the beauty is, is that those who are ready are sometimes a huge surprise. People that you least expected sometimes, they just take it and run with it. And so that's the miracle, and that's the, the, the fulfilling, interesting part of doing this kind of work. But here's Jesus giving them a parable. And the parable itself can become a means of preparing the soil, but not overnight, not directly. And that's the whole point. The parable prepares soil indirectly by speaking beneath the intellect. It's not the details of the story. The person who is not ready to receive is just going to hear the story at the, at the literal level, and anything deeper is going to bounce off their force field. But those who are ready, the metaphor starts to seep in into a deeper place. In Hebrew, it's called nafsha. Nafsha is the word that literally means the soul. We could translate it that way. But it's that subconscious self, that place of us that's not directly accessible, the place that resides beneath the intellect. The story the metaphor, the evocative nature of the language starts to seep beneath that and get into that space. And that's what's going on here. That's what parables can do. So now the disciples are asking Jesus, why the parables? Why are you only speaking? Why don't you speak clearly to them? And he answers them at verse, starting at verse 10. Take a look. And the disciples came and said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says... You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Okay, this is one of the more difficult passages. Agreed? Doesn't it sound like really tough? I mean, what is going on here? What is? I mean, it sounds so exclusionary. It sounds as if Jesus or God has already picked the winners and losers and there's nothing they can do about it, you know? And, and we've got to parse this. We've got to understand this again from an Aramaic point of view to get down to what is happening. In that first line, for you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Remember there, to know is yada. To know there is not intellectual understanding. Yada is the word for hand. To know something as they're talking about, as Jesus is talking about, is to have intimate experiential familiarity over and over again, the way a craftsman knows his or her tools, you know, the way a person knows the faces of their of their loved ones around them. They can they can feel the face in their hands. They can feel the tools in their hands. This is what yada means. 
And so to you, he says, it has been given to have intimately experienced the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And the word mystery there, rasa, literally means a, a, it can be a mystery, but any kind of secret, a symbol or a sign that has a deeper meaning. And so, because Jesus' first followers, his most intimate followers, have taken the time to walk with Jesus, to leave home and hearth and even their professions, to take the time to live with him and learn with him, to imprint with him, to them it has been given to know beneath the signs and the symbols and the secrets that are bouncing off of other people's foreheads. But notice, this is an idiomatic way of speaking in Hebrew, where the, where the results or the consequences of something are stated as the purpose. It's this really weird way that, that Hebrews have of speaking. And the reason is, is that they see God as the prime mover in every aspect of their lives. So if something happened, it happened because God willed it to happen, because God acted for it to happen. And for no other reason, because it did happen. Because it happened, God willed it. That was their worldview. That was the way that things were expressed. But really what's going on here is simple cause and effect. Remember at the end, in Matthew 6, at the end of of the giving of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, if you forgive your brother, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you don't forgive your brother, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. Same kind of thing. What's going on? What happened to unconditional love? What happened to unconditional forgiveness? Suddenly I have to perform now like a trained seal in order to get my fish? What's going on? But the idea here is the same. There is no power on heaven or on earth, in heaven or on earth, that can force us to become free from the resentment and the bitterness and the victimization of someone else's perpetration on us. Only we can do that for ourselves. Jesus saying is just the expression of the reality of life. That if we are holding on to resentment, if we are holding on to unforgiveness, then that is exactly the reality that we will endure, the reality that we will live. But when we release that, when we forgive the brother, which means we free ourselves from all of the victimization, then really what's happening is we become aware of the eternal state of forgiveness that we're always in from the Father's point of view. Do you see how that works? Many are called, but few are chosen. Once again, is God only choosing some that he had preordained? Calvin would be proud, but is that really what's going on here? It's the same idea. Many are called, but few choose to be chosen. It was the followers of Jesus who took the time to follow him that were able to see beneath the surface of the mysteries that he was teaching openly. To you it has been given, but it was their action that made it possible. It is not God doing this or not doing this, giving or withholding, it's our action that really makes the result that we're looking at here. And this is Jesus just again stating that reality of life. But it sounds so bad when we read it in English this way. And then this idea of, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. How fair is that? Come on. But once again, it's the same idea. For those who have the ability, have the willingness, 
to see beneath the surface, who have the willingness to let go of their own sacred cows, to let go of the things that they're clinging to, to be humble enough to still be teachable, to be willing to empty themselves so that they can be filled. For those people, the keys of the kingdom are there. Everything is available, and they will have an abundance because of that ability to do that. But those who don't, those who are still closed off, those who are still too hard-headed, those who are too invested in the status quo, then eventually and over time, they're going to lose everything, even what they think they have, which is just illusion. But here is the idea. Again, it's not God doing this to them, to us. It's all about our choice. And Jesus is trying to get this across to them, trying to get them to understand what's going on, why he uses these metaphors, these these parables. Parables allow us to be immersed in a story that seeps beneath that that intellect, as we talked about, begins to present truth beneath that literal understanding. How does it do that? Well, a parable... In uh, Aramaic is matla, matla. And it comes from a root that is a verb. And this is typical of, of Hebrew nouns. They all come from verbs because Hebrew is based on function over form. Hebrews are concerned with what something does, how it functions, not what it looks like. And so even the nouns come from verbs. And the verb that matla comes from means to stretch out, to extend or provide cover, Kind of like throwing a tarp over something that you want to cover up and protect, you know? So they use that verb to mean a story or a riddle, which basically does the same thing. It stretches out a covering over it. And so these matla, these parables of Jesus, what they do is they reveal and they hide at the same time. Doesn't a riddle do that? You know, the same thing. It reveals and it hides At the same time, it presents truth in terms of well-known images, but it also presents a paradox at the same time. It presents a non-rational way of carrying the people into a different place. It has the ability then to, to start to dismantle whatever we're holding on to, whatever we're clinging to that's blocking our growth. Non-linear sequences mixed in imagery and paradox and humor. Jesus often uses humor at the same time to break up that soil, that hard-packed soil, to allow us to start to become willing to at least empty ourselves and see what the, the new truth that's coming in can bring. Because truthfully, without unlearning, without emptying, I always had a friend said, you know, you got to flush before you fill. You know, you can't fill a full vessel. Don't go there. All right? It's the same thing here. If we're not willing to unlearn, if we can't break up everything that's so hard-packed in our understanding and in our belief system, then we're never going to be able to go where Jesus is going. And so then Jesus interprets the parable. And take a look, starting at verse 18. Here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom whom the seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. 
And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. All right. That interpretation is what the church has usually interpreted between believers and non-believers, between us and them. But here's what happens when we put it back into Aramaic. Jesus' interpretation of the parable can also be taken as a parable. Jesus' interpretation of the parable also has a figurative value to it that allows us to go even deeper. The seed, the word, the melta, again, it's that flow, it's that narrative flow. And to hear or to not understand is not to be in that flow, to not be in concert with the flow of spirit, not to be ready, not to be prepared to hear something new, something different. And now that first line, the evil one, all right? The seed goes on the, on the path. This is the person who is not prepared. The evil one snatches it away. This evil one, the word for evil one is santana. Satana, I should say. I'm Santana. I'm going into, I'm hearing it now. <laughs> Satana. It's the word we get Satan from, Satana in, in Aramaic. But literally what it means is adversary. That which causes us to turn aside, that which causes us to go astray, it doesn't necessarily refer to a specific being as we understand Satan to be. In fact, in Numbers 22.22, Satana is used to refer to the angel of the Lord who blocks the way of Balaam's donkey. I don't know if you remember the story of, of Balaam's donkey, but it's the angel of the Lord blocking the way. That's Satana, the one who blocks the way, causes someone to have to turn aside. And remember, it was the birds that were the first image used in this regard. And birds, parata, comes from a root verb, just like we were talking about before, that means to fly about, to flutter, to squander, to dissipate. It means to be ADHD. <laughs> It's an inability to focus. It's, it's, it's that your mind is so full and, and just flitting all over the place like the inside of a pinball machine that you can't even focus on anything. Do you understand where Jesus is going with this now? You know, When we are unprepared, when we are so dissipated, when we are so focused on every last thing that, that, that is going through our minds, it's easy to hit the thing that's going to turn us away. The next distraction is what turns us aside. You know, the next desire turns us on a whole new path. Again, we can't blame the devil for this. This is us doing it to ourselves. This is a theme throughout all of Jesus' teaching. We are the cause of being in kingdom or not. We are the cause of being forgiven or not. Because we make those choices. From God's point of view, he's already made his choice. He chose us. Are we going to choose him back? Then there's the rocks, sua in Aramaic. Again, from a root verb that means to stop up, to obstruct. And figuratively, it means a closed heart. They use it to describe someone with a closed heart, who's hard-headed or stubborn. And so if you're closed off, if you're stubbornly holding on to what you think you already know, how in the world 
is another truth going to be able to penetrate that? How about the thorns? You know, kuba in Aramaic. Again, the root verb means to feel pain or to feel sorrow. It's something that arrests natural growth, holds you back. For us, it's those of us who are still hanging on to the traumas of life, who have not been healed of the things that have caused us to put in place emotional programs for happiness or survival that are still driving us in dysfunctional directions, still creating patterns of behavior that are dysfunctional, but we can't seem to stop them because we're still feeling the pain. We're still feeling the sorrow. And so Jesus' interpretation of these exists on so many different levels. And here's the most important thing. It takes us far beyond just believers or unbelievers in a theological truth. That's probably the last thing on Jesus' mind as he's talking about this. You know, There are many different kinds of people in both camps, believers and unbelievers, that fit the description that Jesus is trying to get across to us. You're all here. You keep showing up on Sundays. You're believers. I'm sure you would categorize yourself as as believers, wouldn't you? So that means we're all good soil, right? By definition, we're believers. We're good soil, right? (laughs) This is the greatest disservice that we can do to this parable, to make it just about believers and unbelievers in a theological proposition, to make it just about us and them. Because... It's not just about different types of people. It's about different parts of ourselves at the same time. In recovery, there's a concept of the internal committee. Those of you in the program, you know about the internal committee. It's, it's that, that chorus of voices inside that's always talking to ourselves. It's like having the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder, and your conscience is talking to you, and you've got this, all of this noise and all of this dialogue going on just internally. In Hebrew, there is the concept of the inner community, is what they call it. And the goal of the human being is to take the inner community and completely unify it with the outer community so that you're always speaking with one voice. The chorus of voices inside is saying exactly the same thing that the chorus of voices outside is. There is no difference between what you do interiorly, how you choose interiorly, and the actual choices you make. What you're thinking, what you're feeling, your secret most parts match everything that is happening outside in, in, the, in the outer community. Who among us is completely unified in that way? Any of you have a completely smooth stone yet? I can sure say I don't. There are still parts of us that are unhealed. There are parts of us that are strongholds. Mary and I were just talking about this the other day. There are things that we think that we have so evolved beyond that we have so, you know, put a stake in the heart of that one and then it just pops up at the oddest times and you realize, God, that thing is still there? I haven't put that one to bed yet? How in the world? All these years? This is the human condition. There are layers upon layers upon layers. We are all four soils, each and every one of us. We're all working through this. Remember Paul in Romans 7? You know, oh, wretched man that I am, he says. You know, I don't understand what I'm doing. The things that I hate are the things that I do, and the things that I want to do are the things that I don't do. 
What a wretched man I am. He's talking about the same thing. There are unhealed parts. There are still parts that don't quite conform yet. And this is the working out, the salvation that he talks about. You know, We continue to work out. We, keep, we continue to keep showing up to the comma, showing up to the dash, showing up to this way of living life that is going to continue to smooth out the stone, even if it's a job for the rest of our lives, which it will be. And maybe not just for this life. Maybe it continues on in the next life. I don't know. But the point is, for right here and right now, this is the human experience. Each one of us is all four types of soil at once. You know people that you can trust in some areas and not in others, right? You know, They're good over here, but don't go over there. And you know the same thing about yourself. We all have blind spots. We all have these places of unforgiveness, these hard-rutted paths, these rocks, these, these thorns. So in this new year, what we can start to do if we can grab a hold of this uh, concept, this scenario, this paradigm that Jesus is giving us, and we can start to grow new ears. That's the whole point. He who has ears... Let them hear. Can we start to hear things in a new way? Can we start to let go of the hard-packed truths, quote-unquote, that we have held on to for so long that they have become these rutted paths in our lives? Can we move beyond just the theological events, the things that we know intellectually, to see how all of Jesus' life informs everything that it means to follow him? Can we we be ruthless about our own personal unlearning? Always letting things go to test them, to see whether they really come back to us or not. Whether our life is being held back by these things. Can we let life, every part of our lives, because parables are like life, they present indirectly, they teach us of things, but we have to keep showing up. Can we let life, can we let Jesus' parables, can we let... All of the indirect parts of our lives continue to inform us to find a place and settle down and take us into new beginnings. Can we quiet the distractions? Take the time to train ourselves to quiet our minds and quiet the distractions so that God's voice can speak in ways that we can start to understand? Can we admit to ourselves that we're all four soils, that we still have unfinished business, that we're still clinging to incompletion, and that it is an ongoing process? I had the uh, honor of being able to do a wedding on Friday. It was a busy week. And it, it was on the beach at Dana Point, you know, right past the Ocean Institute on that little cove right there. And so obviously we were worried about rain because it was pouring. It was monsooning on Thursday. And, we're, and they, were, they had their hearts set on the couple on having a, a, beach on, a wedding on the sand. You know, and so they wanted that so badly. And so we're watching everything on Thursday. Everybody's looking at their phones and seeing you know, the little clouds or not clouds or rain, trying to decide what the weather's going to be. It turned out that it was a little slice of non-precipitation, just long enough so that at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, we were all 25 of us or so standing on the, the sand at that cove. And uh, the poor bride in her you know, spaghetti strap thing, she was really cold. But she, she did all right. 
But this is a couple that we've known for years. And this is a couple that has been living as husband and wife. They have a child together. They're, they already have a home and a family and everything established. But they're making this commitment now to actually get married. And as well as they know each other, and I was telling them this at one point in the ceremony, as well as you know each other, as much as you already have built together, here's my prayer for you. That this marriage will change nothing and everything at the same time. It'll change nothing of the love that you already have, the family that you've already built, the home that you have already constructed around you, but it'll change everything in terms of the level of connection and commitment that you can move into that you didn't even dream was possible before. Because that's what marriage can do. For as much as we may think we know marriage, until you make that commitment, until you create that contract, you don't really know the depth of the connection that you can have. And that's what I think we all have to realize. As much as you think you know Jesus, as much as you think you know your faith, as much as you believe what you believe and you cling to it as truth, if you can sign on the line that takes you to the next level of commitment, the next level of connection, which is going to require of you the next level of purging, the next level of, of giving away of yourself in order to have that increased intimacy, that increased connection, then you have ears to hear. And you will need to deal with the four types of soil that you have inside. Be completely aware of what you're doing every time you move into that deeper commitment. That's what I pray for ourselves as well. That this new understanding, this new level of connection will change nothing and everything at the same time in our lives of faith. Let's pray. Father, from my point of view, thank you for Ellen on meetings and weddings. It is so amazing to just move into the, the center of the flow of life and to be a part of, of people's deepest pain and, and sorrow and trauma and then their deepest joys on the next day. But every single one of us is doing this every single day. If we're paying attention, if we're aware that every moment is a deep dive into this flow of life. Help us more and more to be aware of that. Even in the moments that seem insignificant, help us to see how we are still in the center, the deep flow of human life and life in your spirit. Help us to cherish those moments. See no moment as insignificant. Show up to each one with equal intensity, equal engagement. And to continue to work through our soils. Help us to do that, Lord, more and more each day, intentionally, on purpose. Find ways to keep smoothing out our stones. Father, we love you. You've given us everything that we need to be able to love you back and each other with the intensity that you call kingdom. Thank you, Lord. 
Never let us forget that we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen? All right, let's all stand.